This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This is all theater. It's all just political theater. Political theater. Political theater. Pure political theater. Theater. Political theater. The nefarious, significant, and protracted political, political, political theater for political theater's sake. I yield back. From Washington, this is Political Theater. Roll Call's review of the spectacle of politics on Capitol Hill and across the country. I'm Jason Day. Mary Curtis uh, is a Roll Call columnist. She's a former Roll Call political editor. Uh, She is a Jill of all trades when it comes to journalism (laughs) and somebody who just keeps up racking accolades and awards, the most recent being the Society for Professional Journalists Dateline Award for her columns in Roll Call. They discuss race, they discuss politics, they discuss religion. They're a great read and they're also uh, a great illumination for where we're at right now undergoing this profound, I think, debate about race in America. Mary, thank you so much for joining Political Theater today. Thank you. And don't forget my middle initial. (laughs) Mary C. Curtis, yes. I think that the way that you look at politics, uh, particularly through your own experiences and also particularly through race and religion is very unique. And one thing where a lot of those issues collided this week, I think, is is not just the protests that we're seeing over George Floyd's killing and Richard Brooks killing in, in Atlanta, but also we just passed the fifth anniversary of the shootings at the Mother Emanuel AME Church in, in Charleston. It was almost like people just wanted to kind of note it and then we're, we're back in the, in the present talking about policing legislation, things that are important. But I wanted to take this moment and get your thoughts about this because I feel like this is part of the debate. This is the debate. Dylan Roof, who committed the murders at Mother Emanuel Church, it was a racially motivated multiple homicide. Well, I really appreciate you bringing that up because yes, Five years, uh, June 17th, people thought, oh my God, yes, it happened. But it was such a traumatic time and a, a traumatic event. I'm based here partially in Charlotte, North Carolina. And whenever I go to Charleston, I say it's a place where the history and humidity are oppressive because you go there and it almost seems like an antebellum time that is so much about the South that has stood still and so many remnants of the times of enslavement and segregation and Jim Crow and all the statues. And on this historic black church, Mother Emanuel AME, it's dominated in this park by the statue of John Calhoun, the slaveholder and segregationist. And, And this happened here where this young white man. And that's why, you know, I wrote a column saying people say the young people will save us, but this was a young man. 21 at the time, yeah. Who went to church with people who prayed with him for almost an hour. They were nicer to him than anyone had been in his life. And still, he was infected by this disease of white supremacy. And he took out a gun and killed nine people. And uh, the pastor of the church, Clementa Pinckney, of course, was a pastor and also a legislator, and you could go back and forth from you know, Columbia to Charleston to his church. And um, I went to that funeral, Amazing and people remember the president, Amazing. Obama, at the time, Barack Obama sang Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace. 
And I mainly remember just basically all the people there who loved this man, Clementa, and who, for whom he had meant so much, and his widow and two little girls, just inconsolable. You know? And people talk about black fathers, and well, here is an incredible father and these kids who will grow up without a father. And this was because of white supremacy and this man who had that. And I actually, as an, you know, so many African-Americans, we live with this for generations, but when things like this happen, there are almost no degrees of separation. And one of the women, Cynthia Graham Hurd, who was killed, the woman who was the librarian for whom a library was named and uh, was a, a wonderful teacher, and I even met her a few times, was a sister of a local uh, Charlotte City Council person, Malcolm Graham, former state uh, senator. And he had to go down and uh, identify her body. And, you know, we talked about it. And he said, I want people to know about who she was. Tonight, let me read the names of the victims. Would you all stand for one moment? Not just the name on the screen on CNN. Cynthia Heard. And it's for all of these nine people, it was nine wonderful lives. And then it was their families and all the people they affected who will be affected for the rest of their lives, the trauma. And then I think you have to pull out and see the trauma of what people are marching in the street about now. That's why they're marching in the street. It's not just about that day and Dylan Roof or George Floyd, Richard Brooks. It's about the search for equality and the pushback that always comes to the progress. And just trying to say, see us as human beings. This is what we want. We are so a part of this country, a part of the blood. We helped build it. You know, African-Americans have fought in every war, fought for the ideals of a country that, you know, the, the country that was not on their side. They believed in the country before the country believed in them. I always say, I think African-Americans are more patriotic than anyone because they believe in the words, the ideals, as Martin Luther King often said. So yes, it was a, a day that was full of heaviness and trauma, and it really does fit into the mood of African-Americans looking at this country and saying, how do you see us? Because we see America as we think it really is and should be, and we're holding the mirror to account. And um, this white supremacy that would cause this young man to do this, that would cause a police officer to know that he was being filmed and yet put his knee on the neck of a person for almost nine minutes. Just, you have to reevaluate and see because people are just, they're angry, they're exhausted, they're hopeful, but it is a moment. I'm a journalist, so I, I do, I've always been very comfortable being on the outside looking in, but I'm an African-American woman uh, in the United States. So yes, I've been profiled. Yes, my son who is a PhD from Yale has been profiled because all of those respectability things don't protect you if you're a young, uh, an African-American. So you're living with both of it. And I would just challenge, I think, many of my white colleagues and acquaintances to say, you're not out of it either because you're also affected by this. You may be in your day-to-day -day life, you don't have these interactions with law enforcement and so forth, but yes, this is America, you're America too. And is this the kind of country that you want? One of the things I've been struck by is that, I mean, so much of the, um, you know, the civil rights 
era struggles were the the counterpoint to it was you know the, this this thing that we heard all the time about states' rights. States need to be able to determine their own path forward on how to desegregate or how to deal with their own citizens. Leaving it to the local jurisdictions seemed to be a recipe for continued desegregation or segregation and discrimination. And I've I've just been sort of struck in some of the, you know, some of the policing legislation that from the president's executive order to even some of the House Democrats uh, proposals and certainly on the Senate Republicans proposals, that there's so many voluntary things. I, I was joking, you know, like that when before the Senate Republicans bill came out that like, would they, would they ban, we had this debate, what do you think they'll ban chokeholds, uh, you know, which seems like a a no-brainer at this point, you know, like after what we saw with with uh, George Floyd, uh, and and I thought, well, there's just there's no way that Tim Scott, who is leading the you know the legislative effort on this, uh, and is an African American man from the South, and has talked about being profiled, and gave this sort of moving speech in the Senate yesterday on the floor uh, about uh, recognizing the the Emanuel shooting, and I. I just thought there's no way he's going to leave, you know, he would leave this, this question of like whether to have, to have chokeholds or not to, to just the auspices of Boss Hogg and Sheriff Roscoe, right? I mean, I mean, this, this is just, that's just not going to happen. And sure enough, that's exactly what happened. I mean, how do we get past this? And how, I mean, like, how do we get past the echoes of like struggles that have been going on for a hundred years about states' rights and, and mandates when it's just such a basic human right, rights issue, it seems to me? Yes, I mean, it really is. And also the whole argument about states' rights was very disingenuous because even at the time of enslavement, uh, all the slave states talked about states' rights, but when then they really wanted the federal government to come in when it was the Fugitive Slave Act, right? <laughs> so it's states' rights, but oh, if an enslaved person escapes to a, a Pennsylvania or a Massachusetts, then it's not right. states' rights. Then we want the federal government to come in and pull them back. So that was so very self-serving. Uh, and yes, when you let the states decide, that's how we kind of got into this because we saw it's not just policing, but in things from housing to education to all of these things where we've had generations of discrimination. Say, so when the GIs came back, uh, they let the states administer the GI Bill. So of course, some states did not let African-American GIs take advantage of the educational benefit because it was a state's issue. And of course, you had the housing loans. So of course, they didn't get the loans. And then you had the restricted covenant. So African-Americans couldn't move to the suburbs and get that wealth with their housing. So yeah, and I have to, as a personal note, as someone who's, I think you've met my husband, uh, who's, who's white, uh, when you had the states get into it, until 19, what, the Loving decision in the late 60s, the mid-late 60s, you couldn't even, in that most personal of decisions, marry the person you wanted to, if the states had their way and their say. So yes, uh, when you talk about, oh, you should leave it to the states, that is a recipe for continued inequities. And something like the chokehold, when you say, yes, if the exception is unless an officer fears for his or her life, well, that's what police officers often and always say when they use those kinds of uh, restraints. So I know it's, you know, I hope the, the bills can get together 
And as you say, someone like Senator Scott, who has said that he's had to show his ID more than once and then disbelieves when he says, oh, yes, I am a United States senator, uh, that he would actually be, uh, be a little bit you know, more amenable to those kinds of rules. But we've also seen people, I, I, I saw that Senator John Cornyn uh, of Texas was in disbelief that there's systemic racism in the United States. And I think he made a comment as, well, does that mean every person is racist? Well, no, obviously not. That's not what it means when, it, when you say that systems that are put into place about housing, policing, education can be affected by bias. I think people want to feel like if I'm not a racist person, then everything is fine, if I treat you all, all right. But it's, it's about so much more than that. It's about when you go in, you know, as the studies have shown, if you have a certain kind of name on the resume that looks a little more so-called ethnic, then your resume goes in the trash or, you know, so, so uh, many things. I mean, I, it's, it's a matter of public record. Our current president, Donald Trump, uh, and his father were sued twice by the Nixon Justice Department for discriminating in their real estate holdings in New York. And, and, uh, and once on down here in, uh, in Washington, D.C. area, too. So we, we mean systems and they can affect your life in, in incredible ways, you know, and in the criminal justice system, as we've seen, how, how many white collar criminals have either paid a fine or spent some time in Club Fed, you know, a very nice little <laughs> prison. Whereas, you know, poor Khalif Browder uh, was accused, though never found guilty of stealing a backpack and spent three years in Rikers because he couldn't make bail and then committed suicide. There's no way you can look at this with an eye toward, well, as, with your eyes open as a sentient human being and not see this pattern. But it's been interesting to see all the people in the streets now, and more than in the past, um, you see all races, ages, religions. Uh, my column this morning talks about how many even conservative white evangelicals are taking another look at this and saying, yeah, this is uh, a part of our ministry as well. And um, that's been heartening. Uh, my, my th I'm the youngest of five, Jason. I don't know if you know that. My three older siblings were involved in the civil rights movement. So I was a toddler at the time, but I, I do recall some of the marches and songs and one brother getting arrested in sit-ins. And, and it almost seems a little bit like that, as much as I can remember. I guess that's when I started becoming an observer, <laughs> a journalist. And I, I wonder, do you think we are at a, an inflection point? Because it does feel different. You know, if you would have told me five years ago that NASCAR would ban the Confederate battle flag or that, uh, you know, after years of resisting uh, the, the idea of, of renaming the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma. Now, and, and again, th this was a bipartisan thing. You know, John Lewis, uh, who was beaten on the, on the Pettus Bridge, uh, Terry Sewell, who represents Selma uh, and, is, and is from the, that area and, and is African-American. I mean, they said, no, we need to keep this so people remember exactly what it, what it was. Now even they're, they're saying like, you know what, it may be time. I mean, Sewell you know, came out with a, a statement earlier this week that, that said uh, it's time to rename the, the Edmund Pettus Bridge. The Georgia legislature, dominated by Republicans, passed a resolution saying maybe we should take Alexander Stevens, the Confederate you know, vice president, out of Statuary Hall. It seems like it's different this time. Well, I think 
a lot of folks are optimistic but cautious because we, yeah, my son's a historian and we do talk about progress and pushback. And you talk about John Lewis and he got a skull cracked open on that bridge marching about right to vote. And now we see still when he is older and a congressman, he should be relaxing a little bit. You're still fighting some of the same, same fights with uh, after the Supreme Court Shelby decision taking away a lot of the pre-clearance and the Voting Rights Act. So many states, including North Carolina and others, have put in all of these impediments to vote. Uh, the IDs, where I think the court in the North Carolina case said the, the ID provisions went after African-American voters with almost surgical precision. Uh, the long lines in Georgia, in Wisconsin, the purges. Uh, so I think people, yes, are optimistic and you know, I, voting rights is a huge thing with me because you know people, Megar Evers was in Normandy in World War II and then he came and was killed in his front yard by a racist uh, for registering people to vote. So I think, uh, yes, we're optimistic, but you also realize that you cannot let up on these fights. You can never sit back and say, oh, because there always are, are forces that will look at the progress of some toward equality as taking away an advantage of taking away something. I tell you, Jason, I get some great response all over the country, but I also get some hate just for even writing about anything, or actually just being me, just my picture on the column. And a lot of it is about that. It's just very clear that for some people to feel good about themselves, they have to some, have some group of people that they feel better than. So I hope that's not the case and that yes, you look at these laws, these officers being charged, uh, looking at these symbols, uh, looking at maybe the civil war and how it's taught that it was over enslavement of human beings, that we are making some progress. And as someone who lives this world and I'm pretty much an optimist and I have a son, that's what I want to feel, that it is an inflection point. But as I say, you, you, you always are just saying, okay, are you gonna <laughs> fulfill the promise of the words? Are you gonna let me down, America? <laughs> and uh, you know, we do the best we can. I know uh, all our colleagues at CQ at Roll Call uh, to just try to put a light on what's going on, uh, particularly for the folks that are elected to have our best interests at heart. I think that's a good place to end, Mary. Thank you so much. Please stay safe. Well, I appreciate that. I want to make sure everybody knows to look at MaryCCurtis.com. I put all my TV and all that stuff there. I want everybody to be well, healthy, and safe. Thank you for listening to this episode of Political Theater. Before we go, I thought it'd be good to leave you with this afterward. As Mary and I were having our conversation for this podcast, the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, announced she was ordering the removal from the Capitol of the portraits of four previous speakers who served in the Confederacy. Robert Hunter of Virginia, Howell Cobb of Georgia, James Orr of South Carolina, and Charles Crisp of Georgia. So things do seem to be changing in big ways and small. See you next time on Political Theater. Political Theater is produced by CQ Roll Call, a leader in nonpartisan policy news and analysis for more than 70 years. CQ Roll Call is owned by Fiscal Note, a global technology and media company.